Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm a Senior Vice President at CSIS. Uh, In today's episode, we're joined by my friend and colleague, John Hillman. John is a Senior Fellow for the Economics Program at CSIS, and he's Director of the Reconnecting Asia Project, a really interesting project that's been going on for several years at CSIS. He and I have collaborated on a number of different research projects, most notably one being a report called The Higher Road, which was a bipartisan and public-private consensus strategy on how the U.S. can succeed in today's global infrastructure build-out. But today we're here to discuss his really interesting new book, The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century. Now, John, you don't know this, but my friend Hugh Hewitt, who's a radio personality, has said, if you want someone to memorize a book, you have to repeat it seven times. So I'm going to try and repeat on my podcast seven times the name of your book, The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the New Century. I love this book. I read the whole thing. I read it cover to cover. It was great also uh, visualizing you in various different places. It sounds like you had a really interesting experience writing this book. So let's start with the question I always ask folks, which is like, why did you write this book? Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on to discuss the book. The idea for this happened shortly after the first Belt and Road Forum, which was in 2017, I was able to go to that. It was in Beijing. It was this grand gathering of representatives from something like 110, 120 different countries and international organizations. They literally rolled out the red carpet, a very impressive event. And then right after that, I had some time to visit projects in the region, so in Western China and in Central Asia. And I didn't even get out of the country, didn't even leave China before my vision, my sort of impression of what this Belt and Road was before I started to question that. So I got stuck on the border between China and Kyrgyzstan for several hours because the border guards were on what they called lunch break. I went through about seven checkpoints. And so this was, you know, checkpoint number four or five. And I was just stuck there. And I started to think about, you know, the reality of this thing on the ground is quite different from the image that Chinese leaders are projecting when they have those grand events. Um, And it's sometimes different than we in, you know, Washington, D.C. and other foreign capitals perceive it. As you know, there's the Belt and Road as it exists in grand halls, and then there's the Belt and Road as it exists on the ground. And that's what I've tried to capture in the book. Yeah, there's some really interesting. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the book, and then I've got some bigger picture questions for you. But this book is part travelogue because you've gone to you go to some really oddball, interesting places to kind of help draw out some important insights about the Belt and Road and China's grand vision and how it's bumping up against different realities and hard. So maybe you could tell a couple of stories and then I could ask some bigger questions. But the book is broken out into different uh, chapters. One is on Central Asia. There's another one on Russia, one on Central and Eastern Europe. You have one on Southeast Asia, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. Why don't you talk about Central Asia? Because there's several really interesting stories out of Central Asia. You refer to one of them now. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I, you know, for me, um, that border crossing from China to Kyrgyzstan was sort of a return in a way. I had been a Fulbright scholar and lived in Bishkek over a decade ago. And, you know, returning there, the place has changed quite a bit. 
it's always been very interesting to me. That area in particular is kind of this part of the world where all these external influences are colliding. And so it's an, it can provide, I think, almost a checkup of the global order, if you will, whose influence is on the rise and, and whose isn't. And so you can just see it, you know, in the streets, China's presence is there in a much more visible, physical way, not only selling goods at the local markets, but these large infrastructure projects, which it's been doing. There are two big projects that I visited in Kazakhstan that I talk about in the chapter on Central Asia. One of them is on the border with China. That's the Korgos Gateway, which has become kind of like the mandatory stop for, you know, any journalist covering the Belt and Road. And it's a very impressive facility. But you go there, as my colleague Matt Goodman did, as I did, and as others have done, and you sometimes realize there's not a ton of commercial activity at this facility yet. You know, the facility is designed to transfer rail cargo from the Chinese gauge rail to former Soviet gauge rail. You know, again, really impressive facility. The concept, the idea makes sense. But the activity, at least pre-pandemic, the activity um, was pretty low there. And I, you know, I think to me, at least it's an example of a project that is following the sort of field of dream strategy, right? Where, you know, we're going to build it and all of a sudden the activity will be there. It's been heavily subsidized by the Chinese. And so I think the longer term prospects of some of the activities that are supposed to go through there are, I think, somewhat in doubt or they won't be as transformative as advertised. On the other side of Kazakhstan, I visited a small city called Oktau. And this is on the Caspian Sea. I like sea. visiting Octow in April. That's my favorite month for Octow. <laughs> Try the cannolis. There is a chapter <laughs> or, you know, at least a page or two on this place in one of the Lonely Planet guides. So someone, you know, went out there and I think there are five sites to see. One of them is the Caspian Sea. Two of them are statues. I forget what the other ones are. There's not a lot going on there. That's where, uh, whatchamacallit, that's what, whatchamacallit comes from, uh, caviar. Yep, there's... Some caviar and, well, even more importantly, uh, some oil in that area. And so I was there because I wanted to take one of these cargo ships from the Kazakh side to Azerbaijan. And these have been um, offered for several years, but they're now advertised as being part of these China to Europe transport corridors. So I wanted to go and see what it looked like. And you discover really quickly that there is no schedule for these. There's a lot of delay, if I remember correctly. It's yeah. very goofy that one of the boats at one point sank several years ago, famously. One of the boats did go down several years ago. I was not on that boat, thankfully. But as I was waiting for this boat to arrive, you know, you can monitor these things online through not an official tracking site, but just, you know, a site that collates shipping responders so I'm trying to figure out where this thing is, and I realize it's showing up not where I'm waiting. You know, it's showing up, you know, about an hour south of where I was. So then I had to rush to go find it. And it was at this showing up at this new port that no one had told me about. So this is just kind of an example of how, you know, things are changing on the ground. But really, no, there's no schedule for this thing, which I think also indicates that there's not enough demand to have a regular schedule. And so it kind of goes whenever the captain of the ship decides that the ship needs to go. But I was lucky to finally find the people who are running this thing and got paid for my ticket. This is also, by the way, not the most efficient way, obviously, as is evident now, to go from Kazakhstan to Azerbaijan. Take a plane. Yeah, the flight would take less than an hour. And so this took ultimately 20 something hours to go from shore to shore. And to me, the, the insight there was the unpredictability of this. 
and the presence at every step of the way of these middlemen who exist on being sort of guides to this chaos, you know, to helping people find find the ship and to, you know, get your cargo uh, onto the ship and all of that. So if the system were more efficient, it would actually threaten some of the people who benefit from this chaos right now. So I, in that sense, don't expect, you know, big efficiencies, at least on that route. You also visited Russia as part of this. Talk about your visit to Russia and Blagoveshchensk. Yeah, so I visited a bridge. I went to go visit a bridge that is relatively new, connecting China and Russia and going over the Omor River in Russia's Far East. And when I went to visit the Chinese side, which is where I started, there was basically no security on the Chinese side. You could just walk right down to the water. There was a guy in a little guard shack. He thought it was kind of funny that, you know, a foreigner cared about their bridge project in the middle of nowhere, was very happy to have me look briefly. And, you know, then we all, everyone got on with their day. I went the following day to visit the Russian side of the same project and uh, received a very different welcome and was, you know, met by Russian border guard and spent most of the day with them, unfortunately. And they viewed this clearly as a very, you know, super strategic project. And I think that rather than being kind of amused by the presence of someone, of, you know, a foreigner there, they were somewhat alarmed. And the security on that side of the river is so dense that you know, Russians will actually go to the Chinese side to fish because they can't deal with their own security on that side of the river. You know, I didn't plan to spend the day with the Russian border guard, but thankfully it was only a day and not, and not longer than that. Got it. Okay. So how many places did you visit for this book? About 16 countries, I think, when I counted. Really? About 16, yeah. Talk about the Central and Eastern Europe trip, because that was also pretty interesting and pretty unusual. Yeah, I went to Serbia to look at a rail project that is connecting or you know, at least aspiring to rebuild an existing link between Serbia and Hungary. The Hungarian side, at least, is the first Chinese rail project in the EU. And so this is a real flagship project for the Chinese who really want to you know, gain more market access to the EU. But the commercial justification for this project really doesn't exist. I mean, they're talking about spending lots of money on building a link that's not going to pay for itself. I mean, there's a professor at one of the Serbian universities who ran some estimates and found that it was going to take, you know, over a hundred years for this project to even break even. And that's not including, you know, operations and maintenance costs, which is, you know. Sorry to interrupt. This is like a big showcase project that they've announced that given the level of activity to date, when you travel on it, the thing that they've invested in and built is not going to break even for a hundred years. So they haven't built it yet. They're in the process of building it. But given what we know about how much that line is used, the existing line right now, and what we know about, you know, the populations and the places that it's going to connect, it's not going to pay for itself. And so you have to ask, you know, what was the purpose or what is the real purpose of doing this? You know, if it's not going to be something that's going to help the commercial prospects of either of the recipient countries. I mean, I think the motives for China are pretty clear. You know, to this is a demonstration project, you know, it improves your access to the EU market. It's also one of the few projects that they can claim is technically multilateral because it includes, you know, Serbia, Hungary and, you know, the Chinese involvement, because the vast majority of the Belt and Road projects are just between China and a single country. 
And so I think there's an appeal there as well. Isn't it to kind of get in the door on the assumption that Serbia is going to join the EU and that there's some angle having to do with that? I think there's a tension here between China's short-term objectives, which are just to you know build as much as it can, do as many projects as it can, the objectives of Chinese state-owned enterprises, and sort of the longer-term idea of being more deeply embedded in EU candidate countries like Serbia, which you could then ride into, you know, the EU market by virtue of them becoming members later on. Because as these projects are going on, you see these behaviors and, you know, the corruption, you know, the challenges to rule of law that some of these projects are contributing to makes the candidacy of those countries less likely. So there's a tension there, I think, between the sort of short term and longer term objectives. Thanks for telling me those stories. I love these stories. And I could ask you to tell me others. Again, the name of the book is The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century with Jonathan Hillman's my guest. Go out and buy the book. It's fabulous. I bought it retail. I read it cover to cover. I recommend you all do the same. So, Jonathan, why, John, are they doing the Belt and Road? Well, there's a whole range of motives um, and interests at stake. I mean, everything from just the narrow commercial interest of let's build stuff, which I actually think is pretty important. Isn't like a jobs program. They've got a surplus of young people who need jobs. This is sort of like a WPA on steroids. This is like the FDR New Deal stuff to keep people employed and keep their state-owned enterprises busy. Isn't that a big chunk of it? It has been a big driver. I mean, China's got seven of the world's 10 largest construction companies, and they've built so much at home that in some cases they've run out of things to build, or they've even built things that they don't need. And so these are massive state-owned enterprises who are eager to go do these projects. Chinese state steps in with the financial support, and that's an important driver. I think on the ground, those Chinese state-owned enterprises are actually often the most influential actors, more influential than the Chinese officials that are supposed to be supervising them. When you say that, you mean like the Chinese construction firm that's building in Kyrgyzstan kind of a thing? Yeah, they have the technical expertise. They have more personnel. They have, you know, walking around money. They've got, in some cases, local connections because they've been there for some time. They'll propose projects to recipient countries, you know, like Kyrgyzstan. Then they will go and they'll do the feasibility studies for their own own projects that they have proposed. And, you know, lo and behold, they conclude that what they have proposed is feasible. And then, you know, they'll manage the whole rest of the project, but they're not going to stick around and really, you know, be taking a loss when the thing is done, right? They're on to the next thing. The problem, John, is that the Belt and Road Initiative captures the minds of the imagination of countries. This is like, I'm pissed because I wish we had thought of it. It's a really compelling, attractive idea the way the Marshall Plan was a compelling, attractive idea. and. In my mind, if you look at the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which you know well as a proxy, it took something like six months or a year to gather up, I don't know, 60 or 70 members in a very fast period of time. Is this going to succeed, if I can use that term? Is the Belt and Road going to succeed, John? I guess it depends on you know what your definition of success is. I don't think it's going to succeed in the way that Chinese officials have described it. Uh, nor do I think it's going to succeed in the way that, you know, some of the strongest critics of this have suggested, you know, that it's going to bring about a world in which China is completely dominant. You know, I think that there are risks from lots of these activities, but the risks also run both ways. I think, 
you know, when China goes and it does these projects, you know, these white elephant projects in certain places, that's not a victory for China's reputation. It's not a victory, you know, in the longer run for China's um, finances if they've provided the loans. So I do think that this has been, you know, a much more mixed bag. I think the pandemic is going to be a real test of this and already lots of renegotiation underway. Meaning that there's been so much economic upheaval in all these countries where they're building stuff. And a lot of it's on borrowing money from China, right? So say, hey, you want this road? I'm going to not only build the road for you, do the feasibility study, pay you a bribe. Probably some bribery going on, right? Can we agree? Is that a fair guess? Yeah, this is one of the least transparent global initiatives that's underway right now. I mean, in my next life, I want to be a mayor or governor of one of these small provinces in Central Asia where the Chinese are building stuff through because I think it'd be like really a remunerative move. It'd be great, <laughs> great. You can be the governor of the province next door. We could share in the goodies there. But John, so let's agree. But it seems to me that going back to the COVID, many countries are having a bad COVID economically. They're having to go out and borrow money. And so they're not really in a place to borrow yet more money or maybe sort of the borrowing that they were going to do when they started the project seems less economically attractive given their economies drop 10% or they just don't have the resources or they're worried about paying it back. Spend a minute on what is Hambantota port. Did you go to Sri Lanka? Did you visit the port? I think you did. Yeah, I did. I think every U.S. senator knows about the Sri Lankan port. I'm not sure they can pronounce it, but they know there's this port in Sri Lanka and everyone in, in the world... I suspect from the first Belt and Road Conference to the second one, what happened in between, I think, was Hambantota port and it was sort of a chastening experience for China. Do people worry about future Hambantota port? Spend two minutes on what is Hambantota port, because I think it's you allude to a little bit in some of your comments just a little bit earlier. Yeah, so Hambantota port has become, for many, the poster child of accusations of debt trap diplomacy. This idea being that China drives up recipient country borrowing levels to a point at which they cannot repay their loans, and then they need to fork over strategic assets. In this case, Sri Lanka handing over, giving China a 99-year lease of a port on Sri Lanka's southern coast, and, you know, a very prime piece of naval real estate. I think the challenge with at least that version of the narrative is that I think, in a way, it's sort of unintentionally too generous to Chinese officials because I don't think that they have, you know, as much control over this wide-ranging set of activities as that implies. I think it's much more likely that Hammond Tota was actually a mistake from the Chinese side of not closely supervising its state-owned enterprises, who built not only a port of dubious commercial logic at Hammond Tota, but also a cricket stadium nearby, an airport nearby. You know, none of them are used, or they're very barely used. And so I think that that pattern of behavior suggests to me that this is really not a strategic masterstroke, but more a set of mistakes. We'll have to sort of check in on this in a decade, right? But I don't think that Hammond Toda has been good to the Belt and Road brand. I think it's helped, I think, some recipient countries wake up to the risks of borrowing from China. It's highlighted the fact that China is really an irresponsible lender. And, you know, I think that set of issues is very important in the environment that we're in now when, as you mentioned, a lot of countries are really stretched financially because of the pandemic. For many of them, China is their largest bilateral official creditor. And so the things that I worry about are less actually the sort of ham and toda type activity. Where they take too much money and they say, don't read the small print, I'll lend you all this money. And then they say, hey, I can't pay it back. China said, oh, well, if you looked on page 22 of the contract, 
It says I get to take it over and have a 99-year lease and work out my neocolonial issues like Hong Kong, right? Because that was 99 years. So 99-year lease for Hong Kong, 99-year lease for Hong Kong. I'm sure there's no coincidence. I'm sure they're not working out their neocolonial issues. I mean, yeah, the, you know, I think the people of Sri Lanka, you know, which was under British rule, I think don't need to be reminded even of the parallels there. I think the risk going forward as these renegotiations are happening with recipient countries is less about asset seizures because there have been relatively few of those. And even if China could seize assets, doing so, I think, would confirm everyone's worst fears. It would, I think, explode in a way that would not advantage China. And so the types of things that I worry about are negotiations and concessions for which there won't be as visible a smoking gun, right? You won't see a port change hands. But maybe a Chinese company gets preferential access to some natural resources or the next contract for something, or maybe a recipient country decides to support. Look, I mean, I lend you this money, you do this thing with me, and I'm going to do this at a cut rate deal, but I, there's this mine up country that I want access to. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could use your imagination here. There could be political concessions too. you know, we want your support for whatever it is. We want you to vote the right way on Taiwan. There's going to be a vote in the Security Council and you're on it and we want you to vote the right way. So, you know, I've had 500 Zoom calls since March 15th. I think I've counted about 500 of them. I wouldn't say I've gotten a ton. I've learned a ton, but I've learned like three or four deep things. I've had like three or four deep thoughts after 500 Zoom calls. One of them is that this digital stuff, the fact that you and I are talking on the Zoom is a permanent part of life, not just in the West, in the OECD countries, but in the rest of the world. And so if you want to have modernity in the future, you're going to need literacy, toilets, drinking water, electricity, and high-speed broadband internet. So I want to talk about the digital aspect. And when you and I were doing this project on the higher road two years ago, two years ago plus... The co-chairs said, well, we want to focus a lot on digital. I'm like, well, digital? So our co-chairs were ahead of us, as they well should be, Steve Hadley and Charlene Barshevsky, two really smart folks who were kind enough to agree to co-chair that really important report. So if I say to you, digital, kind of the change landscape because of COVID, I think we're going to be doing, you know, the world's going to do a lot more of this. The demand globally in developing countries for digital infrastructure that they can do high-speed broadband internet, they can do Zoom or they can do all the stuff that we expect to do in kind of OECD countries now, it's going to explode. So could you talk a little bit about that? So I agree entirely with that being, to me, it's one of the two important things to watch this year when you're watching the Belt and Road. The first one is the great renegotiation of all of these deals. The second one is the digitalization of Belt and Road. And I think, as you're saying, the pandemic has accelerated the digital dimension of the Belt and Road for several reasons. So one of them is, I think it's made very clear the demand among recipient countries. I mean, being on the losing side of the digital divide is very stark, you know, over the last year, it's night and day. At the same time, countries have less fiscal space to borrow to do these massive transport and energy projects. They might still need to do those projects, but, you know, typically these ICT digital projects tend to cost a little bit less. And so that makes them a little bit more feasible from the recipient side. From the Chinese side, as all of this is going on, some of China's tech champions are getting squeezed out of Western markets, right? Huawei and Hengtong and Hikvision, and they want to continue to grow. They're going to want to double down in these developing and emerging markets. And so Belt and Road for them, I think, is a very convenient 
avenue for doing that. So if they can't operate in the UK, they're going to double their activity in Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan. Yeah. And even some of the bigger markets, you know, they're going Brazil, Indonesia, Nigeria. And I think it's not enough for the United States to have our response basically be. Don't play with Huawei. Yeah. The security argument is not we're not going to scare people into running away from China's digital Silk Road. What's the alternative to Huawei in these countries? It depends on, you know, the type of infrastructure we're talking about. I mean, Huawei's share in some of these markets is huge. I mean, you know, unofficial estimate in Africa is 70% for 4G networks. And and most of the world is not going to be going 5G in the next few years. And so Huawei has this incumbent advantage already in some of these markets, markets that are the markets of the future, where most population growth is expected. There are interesting technological developments that I think could help the United States compete in some of these areas that it has been hesitant to go. So among those, satellite internet is actually becoming more affordable, more accessible. There are these big plans to launch um, these massive constellations of low Earth orbit satellites that are going to provide global broadband That might allow the U.S. to provide some connectivity in places where we wouldn't have gone, where we didn't want to do the expensive ground infrastructure. So I'm kind of encouraged by that set of developments. And at the same time, you know, the U.S. still has companies that are very competitive in some of these digital dimensions like cloud computing, which, you know, China's largest cloud providers are basically infants outside of China. But they're very serious about expanding. And so we need to make sure that we are doing what we can to level the playing field for U.S. companies in that space in developing and emerging markets. So I, I think that you know, the U.S. has strengths in this area in a way that we don't always have in other types of infrastructure. You use the term flateralism. What is flateralism? So flateralism is my tongue-in-cheek description for China's attempt to cast lots of its Belt and Road activities as being multilateral. So let me give an example. We were talking about Central and Eastern Europe earlier. China has assembled this annual meeting there. It was the 16 plus one. It's now the 17 plus one. It includes EU members and non-EU members. China is the one in that equation. And it's a really smart diplomatic move. Every year, these countries get together and they basically compete for the attention of the Chinese. They pose for photos that makes it look like it's multilateral. They put out statements about the importance of upholding the multilateral system. But all of the deals that are done overwhelmingly are just bilateral deals between China and individual countries. And that's because the Chinese like it that way. They want to be the largest party at the table always. They want to be able to you know, negotiate behind closed doors. They don't want the you know, transparency that comes with bringing more parties to the table. And so with all of the talk of you know, the multilateralism, you know, to me, the reality is much flatter. And you know, it also relies on stroking the egos of some of these foreign leaders and sometimes giving them deals that you know, benefit them personally rather than their countries. And so that's, that's you know... That, that's the idea, that's the descriptor for what I think China is actually doing in some of these forums. Got it. Okay. So finally, there was an article in the Financial Times that talked about a big pullback of lending by China. I'm sure you saw this. Yep. Can you talk about the data, what it says, and how you interpret it? Yeah. So this is uh, from data set that Kevin Gallagher and his colleagues at Boston University pulled together. 
And it shows a really steep decline in lending from basically the two largest players on the Chinese side for Chinese lending. So China XM Bank and China Development Bank. And it shows a very steep decline in 2019. So that's important. It's not last year. It's not 2020. We're talking about, we're talking about 2019, mostly pre-pandemic. And they looked at, you know, this basically official bilateral lending. So it's not the entire spectrum of Belt and Road activity, but it is, I think, one of the most important slices of that activity. And that tracks with what we've seen from other databases, including you mentioned, uh, you know, the AEI China tracker. There has been a pullback that predates the pandemic in Belt and Road activity. I think that there are both factors internal to China. Those are probably the most important, in my opinion, and factors in recipient countries that have contributed to that pullback. You know, I think a really important one is you know, the decline in foreign exchange reserves. You know, China just has less to splash out through this. But those have been climbing up a little bit in recent months. And so you know, it's not inconceivable to see some of the activity go up again. But I think the takeaway here is that you know, the peak Belt and Road years were 2016, 2017. And then we have been seeing a pullback, a recalibration, if you will. And that makes sense. I mean, I think Chinese officials have been learning as they make mistakes through this process and struggling to really effectively monitor all of the activities that they pushed out in really those peak years. But Belt and Road is not dead by any means. This remains Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. It's enshrined in the Chinese Communist Party constitution. And even if Xi Jinping were to disappear magically tomorrow, China as a rising power would still have a real interest in doing these projects beyond its borders, I think someone would come up with a new slogan to describe that. Okay, so here's my last question. So I read your book, What Should We Do About This? What should America and the West do about all this? There's a think tank called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. They did a, uh, a bipartisan task force report about a year and a half ago. There's this really smart co-director named Dan Rundy. He's brilliant. <laughs> but seriously, I do think that that report has within it some really good thinking. It's practical. It starts from the point of saying, let's define our own interests and not just react to what China's doing. Let's look closer at what China's doing and separate the stuff that's you know benign from the stuff that's malign. And then let's focus on our own strengths here too. Those to me are some of the basic elements of a strategy. Just two points about that. One of the things in the report that you really did a great job leading on in terms of writing is there's a circle in the report that's a donut. And if you visualize sort of one-tenth or one-twentieth of the donut is the amount of financing that China's providing for the infrastructure demand for all of Asia. Basically, the point of that graph in our report, John, was there's so much demand for infrastructure in Asia that China, even if it threw all the money at kind of peak BRI, can't meet all the demand, right? Isn't that basically what that point of that was? That's right. Yeah. No country, China included, uh, is going to be able to meet the demand. The other thing I think is important to point out is something you were just saying is if China wants to build some farm to market road in Tanzania, let them do it. There's some things we should not lose any sleep about. And I think this was something Steve Hadley said. There were sort of kind of three categories of infrastructure. One was like, this is fine. Go do it. Then there's some things that's like, okay, kind of keep an eye. And then there's some things we can't allow China to sort of take the commanding heights of certain kinds of strategic infrastructure. And I would put digital in that area. And that's where you've seen so much energy around that topic. But then I think there's certain sorts of ports or certain kinds of 
dual use assets where it's a little bit more dicey. Is that right? Yeah. And it takes, you know, there's an art, you had to look at individual projects in some of these cases. This is a material that people who are traditional, you know, national security defense experts are familiar with this. This is new terrain for them. Yeah. And I think you've seen the the Trump administration start, and I think we'll see in a Biden administration, a continuation or a refinement of things, restarting the Exim Bank, putting the OPIC on steroids, the Development Finance Corporation, a capital increase for the World Bank, the somewhat ill-fated so far experience with the Blue Dot Network, and we'll see what happens with that. These are all attempts to try and respond to this larger challenge, the issue of deal teams, establishment of deal teams at the State Department, the initiative of Prosper Africa. These are all, I would argue, kind of related to this. I think it's not clear to me exactly what the Trump administration's response has been on the digital front, other than to say, I'm going to make it harder for Huawei to operate. I hope is maybe a little bit to your point earlier in the conversation that maybe technology is going to help solve the Huawei challenge, if I can put it that way. But I don't think that's going to be enough. We're going to, I think, ultimately have to offer some kind of alternative. Right. Is that fair? Enable an alternative. Yeah, it's all about alternatives. And, you know, we don't have to do this alone, too. Right. Something we have that China doesn't is this network of partners and allies. And some of them, you know, are outspending China on infrastructure in some of the countries that we care about. But also some of these countries are digital powers, Sweden, South Korea, Japan. Yeah. Well, John, this is great. Let me just remind everybody, this is the book, The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century by John Hillman, who's a colleague at CSIS. I love the book. It was great. He's got some fabulous cover reviewers for it that are really wonderful. Uh, Peter Frankopan, who wrote Silk Roads, which is another great book. Graham Allison, Elizabeth Economy, Robert Kaplan, Steve Hadley. So just a fabulous book. Congratulations, John. I loved it. And uh, great. I look forward to your next project. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 